Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. The relationship between substance abuse and trauma works in close tandem. While trauma increases the risk of developing substance abuse, substance abuse in turn increases the likelihood of being re-traumatized by engaging in high-risk behaviors. Traditionally, substance abuse treatment programs have held the belief that addressing trauma could trigger traumatic responses, leading clients to relapse. However, by integrating trauma treatment into the substance abuse treatment process, Simultaneous treatment has proven to be effective. This week's podcast guest, Simon Ruth, is CEO at Thorn Harbour Health, formerly known as Victorian AIDS Council. Simon has spent most of his career working in or managing alcohol and drug programs with organisations including the Salvation Army, YSAS, Monash Health and Peninsula Health. He was the recipient of a Victorian Travelling Fellowship to investigate older adult alcohol and other drugs treatment in the US and Canada. Stay tuned as Simon chats with me about the role trauma can play in preventing and treating addictive, addictive behaviours. All right, hi Simon, thanks very much for joining us and sharing your story with our listeners. Appreciate your time. G'day Sam, good to be here. Simon, do you just want to give everybody a bit of a background, give the listeners a bit of a background, a bit of context into how you got to be CEO of Thorn Harbour Health today. If you just want to Wind the clock back a little bit and give us a bit of insight. So I studied genetics at university. Oh. Realised I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a lab. And while I was at uni, I got a part-time job in a needle syringe program in the early 90s in Melbourne when those services were just sort of rolling out across the country, which took me very much down a different path, working in drug and alcohol services. And, and I have a career that spans a whole range of different areas. Primarily drug and alcohol has been the one theme that I've sort of kept going throughout the career, but... I've also worked in child protection, I've managed Aboriginal health programs, youth programs, homelessness service, worked for Peninsula Health for 12 years prior to my current job and was director of complex services there, which included a whole range of sub-acute programs and community health programs. And then came to what was then the Victorian AIDS Council. And when I arrived in 2013, VAC was very much focused on still HIV, which had been where we started from. But then over in the eight years since then, we've very much broadened out into LGBT health and changed the direction of the organisation, rebranded the organisation and headed down a, a different path. Wow. So, mate, you were, you were originally into genetics 
and then you, you sort of had the opportunity to jump over and... I, I have a genetics degree that is 30 years out of date. Wow. Um, <laughs> so you've always, your passion was always around that genetics and the science? Uh, I read X-Men comics in the, uh, in the 80s okay. and uh, yeah, so I selected genetics when I went to do my science degree. Uh, okay, right. So that's it's such an interesting diversion from what you started out to, to do and what you're doing now. How have you seen it over the... Th- the 30 odd years that you've been in doing what you're in the various roles that you've been up to how have you seen the changes going on with AOD addiction substance abuse that sort of thing you know I guess my entire career has been based in Melbourne too yep which is worth noting I, you know I guess there's been a, a professionalization in the drug and alcohol sector over 30 years you know we we are now generally accredited organizations we have quality controls you know we acknowledge lived experience much more um, probably than we did previously. I think particularly in Victoria, there's a really good spectrum between strongly harm reduction programs and strongly abstinence-based programs. It's seen as a spectrum. It's not seen as two different sectors. We, we cope better with new and emerging drugs. You know, the, in, in the late 90s, it was very much about heroin in Victoria. Her, heroin was what everybody uh, was doing in service delivery. It was the primary drug that we were seeing. There was one point where the Herald Sun had the heroin toll next to the road toll in the paper, and we were counting the numbers of people who were dying of heroin overdose. And then, you know, the heroin drought hit, but it was probably, you know, a a realignment and, and heroin you know became more difficult to get in the country and, and it very much shifted back to alcohol and cannabis becoming the drugs that we were seeing more of you know australia led very early to you know i now work in hiv in australia led very early around harm our rollout of needle exchanges our rollout of methadone in this country was groundbreaking and and had us at the, the leadership in that area we're very fortunate that we never really had hiv break into the injecting drug user population like it did in many other countries around mm-hmm. the world we've probably then dropped the ball on harm reduction in a lot of ways we did really well in the 80s and 90s you know and then it took us a very long time to look at safe injecting facilities which is still only two in the country there should be many many more you know and then you know it, it's an it's an ongoing um, development it's exciting we'll have the harm reduction conference back in melbourne um again next year so hopefully we can start talking about those advances and things we need to see there it sounds really interesting i'd love to know more about the work that you've done with the aids council and where that's heading how have you seen that change over the years and we where, where do you think so i've been there for eight years and going on nine years it, it was a very much a HIV service when I arrived. It was very much dominated by gay men and HIV. Mm. Particularly, we, we offered care and support programs in Victoria. We offered medical programs, which Queensland does as well, but not every state does. And we did health, a lot of health promotion. You know, we, we know that the more successful we are with HIV, the quicker the money will dry up. And we're very conscious that government at some point might decide there's an acceptable rate of HIV in the community and something they're prepared to live with. So there's a need to diversify programs to ensure that we are there at the end trying to meet our mission of ending HIV. And naturally for us, the the area that we were already dabbling in doing some work in was LGBT. We had seen ACON successfully move in that direction in Sydney prior to us doing so. And, and we now provide a wide range of LGBT health programs in the family violence space, in the drug and alcohol space. We have the largest primary care service for trans and gender diverse people in the country, which is Equinox. And we've also moved into South Australia for various reasons. Air AIDS Council ceased to exist and, and we were invited to go into South Australia and start providing services over there. Moving into LGBT health, it's, it's a much more diverse area. It is still, funding-wise, it's still driven by concerns. So we don't have a lot of gay men's health programs we have a lot of hiv programs and we don't have a lot of transgender health programs we have medical services that service transgender people lesbian and bisexual women tend to miss out because they don't have a primary issue of concern so you know we're constantly arguing with government about the need to 
start putting money into women's health and to expand the scope of um, men's and transgender health as well. And then the intersex community who, depending on the state and depending on, you know, the, the local groups may or may not be part of the work you do, you know, and they have very specific needs and, and very different issues to, to the rest of the LGBT. Many, many, we, are, we are a community-controlled organisation too, so we were developed by our community, for our community. We employ our community to deliver services to our community. The community elect our board and, and we're held, held accountable to community through that process. So anyone can get onto the board of Thorn Harbour Health. You just need to become a member and put yourself up for election and, and, and you can help govern the organisation. Okay. And many of our developments have been developed by community coming to us and saying we want to do some work in this space. So a service like Equinox, which is our trans primary care service, that was because two trans people came to us. At that time in Victoria, you had to get a psychiatrist or a trained psychologist to sign off before you could get onto hormones. And there was a two-year wait to, to get those appointments to, to be able to do that. And, and we had a, wow. a trans GP and a trans member of the community who came to us and said, we need to break this, you know. There is no reason that an adult can't make that decision for themselves. And so we agreed to establish Equinox. We brought the GP in-house. We released the informed consent guide, which talked about the fact that adults should be able to make these choices and, and very much did break that power imbalance that existed. And, and those guidelines have now been adopted by their national peak, Ozpath, and have been rolled out across the country. So now any adult who is transgender can, can go and get access to the, the treatments that they need and want to further their health care. Equinox, our program, Unlike most other services that are working in the space, though, is delivered by trans. When you walk in, the receptionist is transgender. It's highly yeah. likely the clinician's going to be transgender. There's, there's peer support workers in there and peer navigators who will help you through this. It's very good at making people feel comfortable and at ease when they walk in the door. We did get feedback from members of the trans community that they felt comfortable in Equinox, but not in our other clinic. And the only real difference between those is who the reception staff are when you walk in, who's sitting in the waiting room with you. So, so it's very much about a peer-led service model and, and peers developing services that meet their own needs. What year was Equinox? Probably five years ago now, okay. five or six years ago. Okay, so it's, it's relatively new. How would you say Victoria's going? I mean, they're leading this space, do you think, when you look uh, at the other states, territories? So Victoria is the equality state now. We, the Andrews government came in and said equality is not negotiable. They have, you know, we're... We've put a lot of money into the delivery of medical services for transgender people and, you know, we, we probably have more people coming out as trans than any other state in the country. New South Wales is about to, ACON is about to establish a similar clinic in Sydney that the government has funded, so we probably will start to see developments in New South Wales as well. But Victoria's always had a lot of transgender peer-based groups, you know, and so there has been a groundswell, you know, of political activism in that space over the years. But yes, people people fly in from Tasmania and South Australia and Canberra to, to attend our services because wow. those are the model that we lead. Yeah. Because they feel more comfortable there than going to a, a heterosexual cisgender doctor. I mean, congratulations on being such an important part of that progress and really starting to change, make some serious changes in that circumstance, in that respect. Tell me about the LGBT community and the dependency on AOD as I know you're very passionate about this subject. So do you just want to tell us a little bit about that and the challenges that they face in this respect? Yes, I guess the LGBTIQ communities or, you know, that acronym might change, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex and queer communities. And there's a lot of research in the space. The research varies depending on who the researcher was, where they were doing it, to whether they included trans people and gay and bisexual people. Intersex people often aren't featured in the research either because there wasn't enough of them to suggest what the outcomes would be or that they were completely left out of the research. So Australia is 
fairly unique that we are one of only a couple of countries that include the I in, in that acronym. Uh, yes. Most, most countries don't do that. And, and so you will see a lot of research that states that they can't make any suggestions about what's going on in the intersex community. But we, you know, there's a couple of coalescing issues here. One is historically, you know, we have communities established around bars and nightclubs and, you know, going going back to the 50s and 60s when, you know, it, it was illegal to be homosexual in Australia and even, you know, the 70s and the 80s and, and in some states in the country, the 90s when it was illegal to be gay in this country, you know, the 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 environments where you could meet other people because you you couldn't meet them mm-hmm. um, through family and friends usually was by by going out to bars clandestine bars that were being run for the gay community so drugs and alcohol have always played a significant role in our community because of that we have much more normalised drug use I put up some data in the presentation about the rates of drug use in the in the gay and lesbian community where it's three four and five times the rates in the general community we we also you know for a lot of particularly gay and lesbian people we don't go through many of those life stages and particularly older people that the rest of the community go through for a lot of probably gay and lesbian people in their 30s 40s and older Having children was never on the cards. That, that is changing with younger generations coming through and different opportunities and, you know, the fact that we can now legally access IVF treatments that we couldn't do 20 years ago. But, you know, so you wouldn't have those life stages of people having kids, having other responsibilities in their life. If you were single for longer, you were still going out to bars in your 30s, 40s and 50s and that's your primary place for meeting people. So there's, there's a much more normalised approach to drug and alcohol use mm-hmm. and it goes on later in life. I'd say those natural breaks that probably occur in your average heterosexual couple's life where they have other responsibilities. Then we also have, you know, we talked about minority stress in the paper and, and, and all the issues that LGBTI people face throughout their lives. You know, and minority stress is a concept that from very young age you're told that you're not right. Um, you might, you know, go to a school where... You get read Bible passages about Sodom and Gomorrah and Leviticus and, and you're hearing constant messaging in your life. And, and if your parents don't know that you're queer, you know, they're likely to make derogatory, they may make derogatory statements about what's going on. My own father, you know, but when I was a teenager, used to comment when Mardi Gras was on the news about those poofs in Sydney and yeah. those sorts of things. And you wear that throughout your childhood and into adulthood and, and, and it, it does, you know, start to give you a sense that you're not adequate and, you know, that you're not as worthy as other people, you know, and, and to constantly hear in the press people arguing about your ability to have rights. as an article in today's paper about parts of the Anglican Church arguing about, you know, whether gay people should be, you know, welcome in the church or not. Mm. And, and knowing that there's just this constant, you know, mm. public discussion about the fact that there are parts of the community who hate you for no other reason than the way you were born how you are you know and that's can all build up in a person be quite wearing and so you know argument that we use drugs and alcohol to cope with that you know self-medication just just as it is with many other people who face addiction but as queer people we face this other level of pressure in our lives that most of the community don't face and and it starts at a very early age and it goes on throughout your life and particularly for older people you know um, it's probably much stronger that you know there's lots of Young queer kids nowadays who have great lives and very supportive parents and go to great schools and have youth groups and and hopefully they're not going to have the sort of um, pressures on them that older people did from from a range of areas. I mean, in in Australia, until the mid to late 70s, a woman could not get a home loan without a man signing for it, co-signing with her. So particularly if you look at older lesbians, a lot of them who came out early live in poverty now because they could never buy a house. Yeah. You know, they, they got stuck in a renting cycle and now they're in their 70s and 80s and they don't actually have that house that they can sell to move into the aged care facility. But they're on an ongoing cycle of poverty. So there's all sorts of little things there 
God, um, I mean, hearing that now, you just think it's so backward, isn't it's it? It's so like, ridiculous, yeah. That's, it's, uh, I mean, that's, yeah, that is ridiculous. I, I mean, you, you mentioned before about the culture, you know, like you, know, you mentioned with your old man or whatever saying, making comments like that. That seemed to be the culture of that generation, didn't it? It was just, and it's probably because they grew up in that environment. But I mean, at what point are we seeing that shift now with the younger generation coming through being more accepting? Is it the work of people coming through making the noise to try and help get the voice who have been campaigning and fighting for it for so long? It's definitely the work of the people that came before. Just knowing gay and lesbian people changes your perception of what a gay and lesbian person is. Knowing a transgender person changes your perception of what a transgender person is. You know, and the media like to portray us in you know, stereotypes, this, this constant discussion around trans women in sport, but the only depictions they ever show of a trans woman in sport is the trans woman who's six foot six. You know, they, they mm. never show the diversity of trans women and, you know, and, and how those rules that currently exist in sport play out differently. They, they always show a certain image. Um, but I think the more gay and lesbian people you know, you know, the more that we get depicted in the media, you know, the, the, the quicker these sorts of things will change. And, you know, my, and my parents, you know, my, I'm from an Irish family. My mother was Catholic. I was raised Catholic. My dad was Presbyterian. You know, they're more conservatives than the Catholics in a lot of ways. You know, they had a certain, you know, worldview, which shifted dramatically when I came out and I had a boyfriend and I brought my boyfriend home and, you know, my, my father helped me you know, pick a ring to celebrate my relationship with my partner who my oh, partner still nice. wears that. So things change very quickly yeah. you know, when, when, you, when you're challenged. Uh, but not for everybody. You know, there are a lot of LGBT people who get rejected by their families outright. Which uh, was another co- contributor to this minority stress. Is that, would that really be part of – it's bigger than minority stress, wouldn't that be? That rejection from family? I mean, that's – I wouldn't know what that would be. I, I couldn't imagine. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is a contributor to minority stress. It, it, it is bigger than that. You know, a, a lot of queer people um, do face complete rejection and there's, you know, particular religious groups where once you come out, you lose your entire community, you know. You, banished. Yeah, you're, ba- you're banished from the community. You're, you're thrown out of your family, you know, and, and you have to survive on your own. And, and then, you know, if we, we break down, there's all sorts of other very unique issues in LGBTI drug use and communities. You know, we have... Chemsex, which I touched on and we didn't talk much about, but, you know, that's a very certain cultural environment that has very certain needs attached to it. You know, conversion therapy is another area with queer people of faith because most, we, we know from studies that most LGBT people reject faith. Um, we have about a 75% no religion or atheist rate compared to 24% in the general community. So if you are a queer person of faith who wants to maintain that faith, that can be challenging, particularly if you want to come into therapy where most of the people are atheists who are offering you the therapy. You know, And there's different yeah. groups, married men, who have decided to come out later in life. We have an online website where you can come in anonymously and meet with other men who are going through that same okay. life experience that you are. You got married in your early 20s, either because you're from a strongly religious background or you're pressured into it or you didn't yeah. realise you might be gay. And suddenly you're in your late 30s and 40s, you've got kids and a wife and, and you're having sex with men on the side and you're still in the closet and you're drinking at excessively high rates because you feel guilt and shame. Yeah. Um, you're very unhappy. We see high rates of anxiety and depression with that group, very high rate of suicide amongst that group of men. You know, And generally they feel incredible guilt about what they're doing to their wife, who, yeah. they, who they do care about and she's the mother of their children, but at the same time they've realised they can't keep living a lie. And so... That is a difficult group of men to work with because they don't necessarily see themselves as gay. 
uh, or bisexual, you know, and so we have a particular service where we offer an, an opportunity for them to engage with other men going through the same experience or who have gone through it anonymously and it gives them that opportunity to explore where they want to go. I mean, you do get some men who go through that in their 50s, come out, tell their wives, their wives leave them. That's generally not a pleasant experience, though, you know, hopefully yeah. over time it will um, fix itself. And then some of those men regret it because it is hard to come out later in life. It's hard to make friends in your 50s. And the environments that you're going into to make friends, as I've mentioned, are probably bars and nightclubs. If you don't yeah. live in the inner city, it's going to become even more difficult to make friends and peers um, because we, we are a very urban community in that way. So one of the one of the parts of minority stress that we you spoke of was around leading the clients to delay or avoid seeking care. Tell us about why that is. So the reluctance from from the community going or feeling comfortable going into those settings is. It, I mean, is it what about those traditional help seeking services makes it awkward or makes them not feel comfortable? going into there to seek some help. As, as I think I said, every LGBTI person has had a bad experience coming out. It's not, yeah. it's not even a question. We can, we can all tell of that time that someone, you know, you know, reacted violently, may have, you know, questioned you, may have had a go at you about lying to them. So you've been lying to me for 10 years about this, you know, suddenly it becomes their issue, it's not your issue, you know, or it could just be something as subtle as a look or an eye movement or, you know, and, and so we, as queers, we... We perceive that we might get discriminated against and, and if you, you do things like the rainbow tick, they'll talk about discrimination and perceived discrimination that a lot of queer people will imagine that they're going to be discriminated against. So they come in looking mm. for when they walk into a service and, you know, and, we, and we put off care and we avoid care because care's, you know, doctors and, and therapists are those places where you actually have to be open. And, and so we avoid going into care settings where we're going to have to constantly come out to people. We're going to have to educate health professionals about our lives. Um, we're potentially going to have judgmental statements made about the way we live our lives. You know, yeah. questions by health professionals about your sexual practices. Have you tried not doing that? Being made to feel guilty for, for, for the way you've lived your life or what's been going on. We, um, we have one service called Pronto, which is a peer-based testing service, HIV testing service. So where you come in and the people who do the testing with you are generally young gay men. And, the, and Acon has a similar service called A-Test. And you, you come in, it's not a doctor or a nurse, it's a worker that we've trained who can do the HIV test, can do all the education with you, can deliver the results. It's a rapid testing service, so you find out within 30 minutes, it's probably 15 minutes actually, whether, whether you've got HIV or not. And when they evaluated the service, what they found was that the men who come to us report much higher sexual risk mm -hmm. than the men who go into the sexual health clinic do. But we actually have lower rates of HIV in our community than the sexual health clinic does with the people they test. And when they evaluated them against each other, what they found was the guys that come to us are just honest about what's going on. Because it's someone sitting across from them who they relate to and they see as a peer, they're quite happy to talk about what they're doing in their lives. They admit to what's been going on. They Not don't being feel judged. that they, they're going to be judged. Mm -hmm. When you go in and sit across from the doctor, you don't tell the whole story. You hold things back. You don't want a doctor who's going to give you a lecture about, you know, how drunk you got and whether you had condoms on. And, you know, you don't need to feel... You already feel bad enough about yourself and that's the reason you're sitting there asking for an HIV test. You don't, you don't need a whole, you know, a lot of guilt put on you by the health professional as well. So... Mm. Um, and so traditional services, I guess, in a sense, what can they do? What sort of steps can they take to try and play their part in trying to reduce the possible stigma or the discrimination that people might feel when they come in to talk about their 
challenges that there's 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 a lot that you can do and and it's you know it starts very early with the moment people walk through the door or the moment people phone you and call up particularly with trans communities don't make an assumption that the voice over the phone is male or female avoid using gender terms like sir when you're asking questions about relationships avoid using terms like wife or husband try try and use partner try, try and help a person feel that they're not going to have to come out to you and, and make you feel better about yourself you know walking into a service you know if you can have reception staff who you know pref you know in our service you know all of our reception staff are trans because that makes trans people feel much more comfortable when they walk in but you know possibly having queer reception staff if that's possible have it having posters that demonstrate that you know you're a queer friendly environment yep. um rainbow health australia and and there's lots of them who release those sorts of things that you can put up in your waiting area Check, check what's in your waiting area and see if anybody's dropped anything else off. You'd be surprised how often religious organisations come in and drop off information into your waiting area that can be quite homophobic or transphobic. Can Is be, that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to work in, a, in, in an integrated health centre in my last job and used to have to walk through the waiting area once every couple of weeks and just check what had been dropped off. Wow. So we, we had more of the Pentecostal religious groups dropping off their magazines and their paraphernalia and... Is that sneaky? And, and sometimes it? it's fine. Sometimes it's there's nothing in it. But sometimes there's some really awful stuff in there that if a queer person was reading it, or a person of colour, or a single mother yeah. were reading it, that they'd that they'd take it quite badly. And then in your systems, in your assessment forms, in your systems, in your data systems, you know they need to be flexible. That you know we can change genders. That we can have preferred names. It's not always easy, particularly in some of the you know the GP based ones that have billing attached to them. So you, you're sort of forced into using a system, and then it doesn't have the flexibility to work with the client. You need to be able to flag ways that if you're doing mail outs to, to your client group or your patient group, that you're using the that you're using the preferred name if that's what they want, but that maybe you're actually using their birth name or that you're not mailing them. We recently had an issue where we had a young trans man who was seeing us and, and due to COVID, we, was, we were doing a mail out to everybody and he had actually selected not to have any mail go to his home because his parents didn't accept that he was trans and, and there was an issue in the home about that and we sent him a letter, which we never should have done and we've apologised and you know we've gone through a whole process there with him. He was very angry at us and it resulted in him becoming homeless and uh, it, was, it was a terrible oh, outcome. Wow. But And we all make those mistakes, but you, you need systems where you can prevent those sort of things happening. Yeah. Um, and, and in that case, it was human error. We actually had yeah. it on the system, but the receptionist didn't see it when they were doing the mail out. So then we've had to change all of our systems to ensure that we don't do that. Sort of thing. In that instance, so unintentional, but yet you can see the impact that yeah. just not trying to get it right can have on people, can't you? Like that's, that's devastating. Yeah. And when you've got when you've got clients in treatment, you know you you need to consider the whole range of things that you know might be relevant to their treatment. So you know you, you might want to consider sexual health if you're you're working with gay men or trans communities around their drug use. You may need to consider if you're putting them on pharmacotherapies. You may need to consider what hormones are on or what antiretroviral treatments are on if they're living with HIV. Um, there could be drug interactions there. Um, there's a range of, as soon as you're accepting trans people into your space, particularly if you're at the more medical end, you're going to need to educate yourself on trans medicine and what's going on there. Mm. So all those little things health professionals can use around that to try and make, you know, just be a lot more, make it a bit more inviting and for people to come in and feel free from judgment and, and feel feel in a safe environment that they can easily, they can come in and, and and discuss their issues or their challenges with with that environment. Is that correct? 
So then if we go to if we go to the things the matter of assessment, so the assessment AOD addictions can be used for connection and coping. Tell us a little bit about that as it relates to the LGBTIQ plus community because it's an important part. But tell us, tell us a bit about that. So I guess that's what, when you're assessing someone's drug and alcohol use, you have to understand why they're using drugs, you know, and particularly for LGBTI people, you know, is the fact that they're LGBTI part of, you know, this issue and, and is that something that you need to be sensitive to and addressing or is it completely irrelevant and you don't have to be? You know, if, you, if you're working with somebody who's, you know, suddenly got problematic substance use and they're, they're concerned about the impact that it's having on their lives but their entire social setting is is around drugs and alcohol in particular bars you, you will see in certain parts of our communities that particular bars and venues play a very big role in people's lives that their whole social network might be in melbourne it would be the lead so there's a certain group of men who go to the okay. lead that's where they meet up or a lot of the social groups hold their meetings in at the lead so it's hard to be outside of that alcohol-based environment and, and so if you're going to talk to somebody about you, you, know, people. you, you need to yeah. stop drinking you need to stop going to venues where you're going to be confronted with alcohol that might not actually be a viable option yeah for that person so possibly looking at managed drinking and, and you know ways to decrease your drinking might be a better option than complete abstinence though for some people abstinence will be where they end up and, and so just understanding those sorts of issues that might be going on in the background because the the lives of queer people are not going to be the same as the lives of heterosexual people it's it's often not easy to you know, you can you can throw a rock in a park and hit a heterosexual cisgender person. It's not that easy yeah. uh, for lesbian, gay, and transgender people. And, and social networks will play a large role in that. And and we know that particularly around minority stress, having good social networks and builds resilience and and helps people cope with that. It helps them start to challenge their own thinking about their worth as a person. Uh, and and having strong connection to LGBTI communities, you know, will help alleviate some of that stress. Tell us a bit about the role that those peer communities play in helping develop part of the strategy for coping mechanisms and trying to assist like what's in reducing minority stress amongst the community tell us about that importance of the peer community i assume that's a big part of it and being able to feel comfortable yeah yeah i guess you know just just knowing that there's other people going through what you're going through that you're not an aberration that you're not a sinner that you're not you know you know a bad parent that you're not you know, more likely to be a sex offender. You know, we've recently had the candidate for Warringah say that the yeah. most trans people are sex offenders and that's why you don't want to be trans, you know, which there's no basis in fact around that, you know, but a lot of that sort of messaging gets to people. And so to have a, a good peer network and, and seeing other people living their lives well who are very similar to you, you know, and, and the opportunity to, to meet people and, and get a different, you know, social environment where you, where you can start to feel worth about who you are is very important to challenging minority stress so yeah you know yeah and you're possibly looking at you know 30 40 50 years of people you know feeling a certain way about themselves and for people coming out later in life who've actually put it off so for that group of men that i was talking about who might be living in the closet until much later in life for them to know that they weren't alone for them to see that there is a possible way to live your life where you know you're going to be satisfied with your life and, and that it's not going to be the end of everything you know, is a huge, you know, thing for them to cross and, and to learn about. And to also know that, you know, it's probably going to be awful for a few months to get there, but that you can get there, you know, that it is possible to talk to your wife about what's going on in your life, that it is possible to 
you know, get back on speaking terms with her, that it is possible that your kids will cope with this, you know, to see how other people have done it, to, to hear from them how the, the mistakes they made, the things they wish they'd done, the things they, they wish they'd done better, to, to understand the steps that you have to go to because, you know, what's the law going to do? What, what are my responsibilities? You know, how's my, how's my work going to cope? Yeah, um, and and you know, for transgender people as well, coming out later in life as well, knowing that you know, hear, hearing other people's experience of what it was like to transition in the workplace, you know, to come back to work as the gender as a different gender than the one you're presenting at, you know, before Christmas, um, is a very challenging environment, and and how to engage HR departments and how to talk to your colleagues and yeah, yeah. there's a lot to it, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's pretty complex and layered when you get into it, and you find you know, the different facets or the different areas of life that can impact, you know, the communities. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's quite amazing. As you, as you look to the future, what do you think, so like what do you think are some of the future challenges that you think we're facing? And, and the second part of it is, are you optimistic with where things are heading as it relates to the Australian community and, and how this is going with regards to LGBTIQ people feeling more comfortable, being able to disclose things um, more readily to try and, make them help them feel safer i guess i am optimistic I, th- I think kids today have a very different experience to what i had in the 80s and 90s you know I, I remember when melrose place almost had a gay kiss on it you know it had the gay character he got a boyfriend and just as they were about to kiss the camera turned away and we thought that was groundbreaking you know channel 10 played this show where there was almost a gay kiss it was implied and, and that was groundbreaking and everybody talked about it and everyone watched that show that night you know and nowadays you can't turn on netflix and stand and every single show has gay characters in it and there's movies and tv shows where the, yeah. the gay character or the trans character is the central character in the show so you know the, the world is changing quickly young people have supportive parents have parents who don't even flinch when they come out or or don't want to talk about Ask them why and have they tried not being gay or trans. And, and so for, for young people, I think it's a very different environment. I think over time we will start to see, but then I should say young people with strong faith backgrounds and in certain parts of the community, that's the case. You know, yeah. They are still going through the same sorts of challenges that older people went through. Over time, we're probably going to see different populations, though. We're going to see older populations who still have a lot of trauma and stress for that from what happened to them earlier in life. And then young people who aren't going to have that, so we're going to see services having to adapt to that. Particularly in HIV, you know, we, we have virtually now two cohorts of people living with HIV. We have older people who've had HIV for a longer time. They're on a lot of very experimental medications that had detrimental impacts on their health and their bodies. And then we have younger people who are getting HIV, who are being put onto good drugs, who will... The HIV is going to make very little difference in their lives. They'll live long and healthy lives. They won't have any sort of long-term impacts of those drugs. Um, yeah. We're going to have these two diverting populations where one's going to get sicker and need to be coped with and the other one's probably going to do quite well. Okay. And so as um, moving forward from a service point of view, do you think, are you uh, encouraged? Are you, do you think we've sort of, we're starting to turn the corner a little bit about trying to do a better job? I think, yes, I think everyone is trying to do a better job, particularly in Victoria. You know, there's, there's yes. a lot of push for organisations to do rainbow tech and to be culturally safe and appropriate organisations. I think there's, you know, there's some organisations who, and I'm, I'm going to talk about faith-based organisations, you know, where we want them to do a better job, but they need to accept they're probably never going to be our first choice of a service we walk into, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that, you know. Catholic organisations, for instance, you know, who are trying very hard to be really queer-friendly organisations, 
But then at the same time, the Archbishop is arguing about why op shops should be able to discriminate in employment. So, you know, there, there's still a lot of mixed feelings around a lot of faith-based organisations and, and where they should sit in it. There is a, there's a wonderful group of LGBTIQ organisations coming up around the country. There's probably 20 community-controlled organisations developing and offering services, and they're in every state and territory now. Yeah. Um, so, so that's great to see, and and it's really good to see, you know, all all the organisations, including the faith-based ones, who are trying to do a better job and trying to make it a self and welcoming environment. Uh, yeah, working. more inclusive. Seems like the education awareness is getting yeah. better and more accepted, and and hopefully that means better outcomes, yeah. you know, for the community itself, right? Yeah. As as we wound up, Simon, tell us just a little bit about about the Thorn Harbour Health and where things are heading with that before we finish up. So so we operate in two states. We operate in Victoria and in South Australia. I talked a lot about Private Lives 3, which is a study in the presentation done by the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. People sort of say, what, what are your three big issues that you want to talk about to government? And it's like, well, we have 15 big issues and we don't know how to select them. So which ones do you want to talk about to us? So, you know, we know from private lives that pretty much across you know, every element in a person's life, LGBTI people do worse. Um, we have much higher rates of dis- discrimin- perceived discrimination. We have much higher rates of violence that people experience. We, um, we're more likely to be homeless. We're more likely to be living in poverty. We, we're more likely to have drug and alcohol issues. We're more likely to have mental health issues. There probably isn't an area where we're not doing worse than the general community. And then if you add in a layer of Aboriginality over that, they're doing worse again. People with disabilities are doing worse again, particularly people with disabilities, because that ability to engage in the community and develop that resilience is actually much harder if you're living with a disability. A lot of our venues aren't wheelchair friendly. You know, it's it's difficult to make to make that journey journey in. If you're living with an intellectual disability, it's harder to engage in a lot of those environments. So we're we're looking at lots of things where where our focus is on family violence and, and drug and alcohol services. Um, yeah. Currently, we with the Mental Health Royal Commission in Victoria, we're very much focused on mental health as well. You know, the, the Mental Health Royal Commission has said that the developments need to consider diversity, so we've sort of become the go-to organisation and, you know, I get asked to sit on lots of committees now and, and give opinions, you know. And, and we, you know, we only exist for our community as a, as a community-controlled organisation. We don't see ourselves ever offering anything outside of services for LGBTI communities and people living with HIV. That's very much where we exist and we, we exist solely to serve our communities and, and we develop our programs based on what our communities want. Yeah. We have a National Women's Health Conference that we run with ACON that gets four to 500 women who attend it. That was developed because women wanted to get together and talk about their health needs. Equinox, as I said, was developed because the trans community came to us and said we, wanna, we want um, to develop services. Yeah. Um, Lastly, how can people get in touch with you? Send me an email at simon.ruth at thornharbour.org. They can go to our website and there's an inquiries um, section on our website, which is Thorn Harbour. So it's uh, Thorn with an A, Harbour with a U, thornharbour.org. And there's an inquiries section there. You know, just Google Perfect. us. We're there. Yeah. We're, we're very easy. We're, we're very prominent. We do a lot of outdoor health promotion campaigns. So if you're driving around Melbourne and you see a man in white underwear talking about sexual health, that's probably <laughs> us. Our website address will be on the bottom of the poster. Adelaide's got those up at the moment as well. Okay, great. So, so we're there. And I checked out the website. It looks very easy to use. Uh, a lot of information on there, a lot of resources as well. So, so yeah, get, get on there and have a look. Simon, I just appreciate your time. Thanks for your insights. You clearly are passionate about the work you're doing and congratulations and all the great work that you've done to date. But no doubt there's still a lot to happen moving forward and, uh, and looking forward to hearing about that. Cheers. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Tom.
Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.